Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories. House Republicans failed to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Find out why three Republicans refused to vote along party lines. The House failed to pass a Republican-led bill to provide aid to Israel yesterday. Meanwhile, President Biden blamed Trump for tanking a bipartisan border security bill that also included aid to Israel and Ukraine. A federal appeals court strikes down former President Trump's claim to immunity in the January 6th case. More on the decision yesterday, allowing prosecution and Trump's vow to appeal. The results for the Nevada primaries are in. Nikki Haley coming in second on the GOP side, despite being the only major candidate on the ballot who voters picked instead. Harvard University faces more government scrutiny after complaints from Palestinian and Muslim students, a new investigation into the Ivy League school. A new sports streaming venture in the works, J.P. Morgan Chase, to open hundreds of new branches. We get the latest from the host of Entity Business. And what's life like as a Shen Yun performer? We ask a principal dancer about his journey to the stage and his dad about sending his son into showbiz. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Wednesday, February 7th, and the Congress is just full of surprises, huh? Yeah, they are. And one of the GOP holdouts, Mike Gallagher, he believes that there is a crisis on the border and that President Biden created it. He just thinks that it's going to be used against Republicans someday if they go ahead and do this impeachment deal. I see. Well, in our top news today, House Republicans failed yesterday, as mentioned, in their efforts to impeach Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. He's being accused of refusing to enforce multiple immigration laws. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the vote. The chamber erupted with Democratic applause when House Speaker Mike Johnson announced the results. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 216. The resolution is not adopted. The vote took place after two hours of hard-hitting floor debate. Congressman Chip Roy accused Mayorkas of blatantly ignoring the laws of the United States. He has done so with reckless abandon. He has done so in a way that has led directly to the death of American citizens. House Democrats united against the effort, calling the proceedings a sham. Congressman James McGovern says impeachment is a solemn act. It's not something that ought to get thrown around lightly or invoked when you disagree with someone or you don't like their policies. Three Republicans joined Democrats in voting against the impeachment. Congressman Mike Gallagher was one of the holdouts. He wrote on X that creating a new lower standard for impeachment, one without any clear limiting principle, wouldn't secure the border or hold President Biden accountable. It would only further pry open the Pandora's box of perpetual impeachment. Another holdout was Congressman Ken Buck. I think the principle is very clear that uh, Mayorkas did not commit a high crime or misdemeanor. And Congressman Tom McClintock, who says the impeachment of Mayorkas would set a dangerous precedent. The House is likely to revisit plans to impeach Mayorkas at a later date. But even if Republicans are able to impeach him, he's not expected to be convicted in a Senate trial. 
where Republican senators have been cool to the effort. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And for some insight into the impeachment vote failure, we speak to Alfonso Aguilar. He's the director of Hispanic Engagement at the American Principles Project. Alfonso, very important topic. Thanks for being here. How did Republican leadership end up miscalculating and end up with some surprise no votes leading to their impeachment effort being derailed this time around? Well, good morning. Uh, well, certainly it's mind boggling. Uh, I, I, I don't understand how they could proceed with this vote was such an important vote politically and in terms of subject matter without knowing 100 uh, percent if they had the votes. So at the end, it's it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for Republicans. Obviously, the Democrats today are celebrating, but I, I think they should have done uh, a better job uh, before uh, taking this vote to to the floor. Uh, as I've said, it's, it's such an extremely important vote in terms of uh, uh, politics, but also in terms of, of subject matter, of sending a clear message that there's enough evidence uh, uh, that, to say that the Biden administration has not enforced immigration laws and that they have lied to Congress. So uh, it's really mind boggling to me. Alfonso, this vote is viewed as crucial as evidenced by Texas Democratic Representative Al Green returning from abdominal surgery, reportedly still in his hospital guard, wheeled into the House floor with no shoes on to cast a no vote. So can you assess the significance of what's at stake here? Right. I mean, again, Democrats uh, understood that this was an important vote politically uh, by defeating uh, uh, this uh, resolution. Uh, they scored political points. Uh, I, I think Republicans uh, missed an opportunity to send a clear message, as I've said, that there's plenty of evidence to show that this administration has created, this administration in particular, Secretary Mayorkas, have created this, uh, the border crisis that we're facing by not enforcing immigration law and by lying to Congress. Uh, it, you know, Mayorkas has been to uh, to, to House and Senate to testify on numerous occasions saying that the border is secure, that the border is under control, when we know that that's a lie. Uh, so it was a missed opportunity. It was such an important vote. But the good news is that uh, Republicans are, 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 are uh, want to uh, have this vote again. They're going to wait for Steve Scalise, who's out because of illness, to come back, and he should come back in the next few months to have this vote. And I think they'll eventually have the votes to, to impeach. Well, Alfonso, something important to note here is that two Republican representatives returned to Congress to cast a yes vote, and one of them was wearing a neck brace. So very serious here. But even if they do have Majority Leader Steve Scalise's yes vote, it would still be short by one vote. So are they still facing an uphill battle? Well, they have three members, uh, Kim Buck, uh, Congressman McClintock of California, and Mike Gallagher. Uh, I think that there'll be a lot of pressure on them and I think they just need to turn one of them, uh, if Scalise comes, comes back, to have the votes to impeach. So, uh, you know, uh, Scalise uh, is going to come back in a few weeks or months. They have time to turn one of, uh, of those members. So I, so I suspect that they're going to have the votes to impeach. Uh, again, I, I, I think this is what happens when you have a small uh, majority uh, where you can't uh, lose, you can only lose one or two votes. Uh, so that's why they should have been much more careful. But having said that, there'll be another day, and I think eventually Mayorkas is going to be impeached. Well, very nice hearing your insight on this. Alfonso Aguilar at the American Principles Project, thank you. Thank you.
And the House yesterday failed to pass a GOP-led standalone bill to provide aid to Israel. This, while a bipartisan border security bill, which includes aid to Israel and Ukraine, faces Republican opposition in the Senate. The bill is not passed. The $17.6 billion bill, introduced under an expedited procedure, didn't get the two-thirds majority needed to pass. Even if it had passed, it was unlikely to have made it through the Democrat-controlled Senate. President Biden earlier threatened to veto the bill. Mr. President, if this bill fails, would you consider supporting something separate that just addresses Israel or Ukraine? I'm not going to concede that now. We need it all. The rest of the world is looking at us, and they really are. House Speaker Mike Johnson responded to the White House, calling the veto threat a rebuke to our closest ally in the Middle East at their time of great need. The legislation included $4 billion for the Iron Dome and David's sling missile defense systems and $1.2 billion for the Iron Beam defense system. Many opponents called the standalone bill a political ploy by Republicans to distract from their opposition to a bipartisan Senate package that combines funding for immigration and border measures with emergency aid for Ukraine and Israel. While declaring that bill dead on arrival in the House, the majority has opted to consider a bill that we know the president will veto. This is a political stunt that makes it less likely that Israel gets its funds while endangering U.S. national security. Some Democrats rejected the bill outright, saying that U.S. tax dollars should not be used to fund Israel's fight against Hamas. Meanwhile, the $118 billion bipartisan Senate bill looks to be on shaky ground. Senate Republicans are on track to vote against proceeding with the measure. And turning now to the war in Gaza, Hamas has responded to a Qatari-proposed hostage prisoner swap between the terrorist group and Israel. The Qatari Prime Minister made the announcement at a joint press conference with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Doha. We have received a reply from Hamas. With regards to the general framework of the agreement with regard to hostages, the reply includes some comments, but in general it is positive. In a statement, Hamas said they have dealt with the proposal in a positive spirit, ensuring a comprehensive and complete ceasefire, ending the aggression against our people, ensuring relief, shelter and reconstruction, lifting the siege on the Gaza Strip and completing a prisoner exchange. President Biden said Hamas's response appeared a little over the top. The administration will be reviewing it. There's still a lot of work to be done uh, here before we have a deal. Although details of the deal are not confirmed, reportedly it would consist of a weeks-long ceasefire that would include Israel releasing Palestinian prisoners in exchange for tens of hostages in Gaza. It would also include a provision for the bodies of dead hostages to be returned to Israel. There are still over 130 hostages being held by Hamas terrorists, including as many as six Americans. It's not guaranteed that Israel will accept the proposal. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said Israel won't stop fighting until Hamas is eradicated. Blinken is heading to Tel Aviv on Wednesday. The Secretary of State is expected to push for a humanitarian pause in the fighting when he meets with Netanyahu. And this just in, Hamas has presented its response to a proposal. The terrorist group has proposed a three-phase deal, each lasting 45 days. It will also see hostage exchange for Palestinian prisoners in Israel, those including serving life sentences.
And up next, a D.C. appeals court rules former President Trump can be prosecuted for his alleged role in the January 6th breach at the Capitol. More on the panel's decision to reject immunity and Trump's vow to appeal. Nikki Haley stumbles again in Nevada, coming in second in the Republican primary as President Biden coasts through the Democratic primary. The chair of the Republican National Committee could be stepping down. RNC members are already floating names for her possible successor on social media and another union endorsement picked up by Trump in a moment. Good to have you back. A federal appeals court has ruled former President Trump can face trial for his alleged role in the January 6th breach at the Capitol. The unanimous decision to reject Trump's claim to presidential immunity is paused until Monday to give time for appeal. Trump argues he acted in his official capacity to protect election integrity and should be shielded from criminal liability. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on yesterday's ruling. A three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously rejected Trump's claim to presidential immunity Tuesday. The panel wrote it cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. The court wrote former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant and concluded any executive immunity that may have protected him as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. Trump's attorneys argue the Constitution Impeachment Judgment Clause indicates Congress held responsibility for trying a president, and that criminal prosecution could only take place after Congress had impeached and convicted a president. The appeals court disagreed, writing the framers knew how to explicitly grant criminal immunity in the Constitution, as they did to legislators in the Speech or Debate Clause, yet they chose not to include a similar provision granting immunity to the president. The judges ruled impeachments cannot be equivalent to criminal prosecutions, rejecting a double jeopardy argument. The court also found Trump is not immune from criminal prosecution under the separation of powers clause. The panel gave Trump until Monday to file an emergency stay request with the Supreme Court. Trump's team vowed to appeal. He can go directly to the U.S. Supreme Court or can ask the entire appellate court to reconsider the ruling. Trump on Truth Social after the decision posted, a president must have full immunity in order to properly function. If the high court declines to take up the appeal, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin would be able to restart trial proceedings. If the court accepts Trump's request, any timetable it sets will decide any further delays. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Nikki Haley suffered another setback in her presidential campaign. The former U.N. ambassador came in second at the Nevada Republican primary in which she was the only major candidate. Meanwhile, President Biden won the state's Democratic primary, his second victory after New Hampshire. Nevada on Tuesday held its first Republican primary in years. Noticeably missing from the ballot, former president and current GOP frontrunner Donald Trump. He's standing instead in the Republican caucuses on Thursday. In an unusual move, Nevada is hosting both contests only the caucuses will provide the winner with delegates. Candidates must choose to participate in either the primary or the caucuses, but registered voters can vote in both if they chose to. This could explain why Nikki Haley finished the contest behind the ballot option none of these candidates. Trump is expected to win the caucuses on Thursday. This will take him a step closer to the presidential nomination. Meanwhile, President Biden also faced little competition in the Democratic primary. 
He won in a landslide vote over author Marianne Williamson and Congressman Dean Phillips, the latter's name not appearing on the Nevada ballot at all. Haley has been focusing her attention on the upcoming South Carolina primary, where she will once again go head-to-head -head with Trump. But the results in Nevada could put a further damper on her campaign. New Hampshire Attorney General John Formella says a fake robocall of President Biden's voice has been traced back to two Texas-based companies. The AG named the companies as Life Corporation and Lingo Telecom. Formella says the AI calls tried to deter people from voting for Biden in the state's primary election. He says the cloned voice told people to wait to vote until the general election. The Attorney General says that says a cease and desist letter has been sent to the company and that a criminal investigation is underway. And the International Union of Police Associations is endorsing former President Trump. The group praised Trump's unmatched support for law enforcement while criticizing Democrats for being soft on crime. IUPA President Sam Cabral said yesterday Trump's policies and actions were focused on improving safety in communities, whereas some Democratic policies that support defunding the police and reduce accountability for criminal behavior have resulted in rampant crime. Trump supporters now hope America's largest police union, the Fraternal Order of Police, will soon follow with its own endorsement. The FOP and the National Association of Police Officers both endorsed Trump in 2020. Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel could be stepping down after South Carolina's primary. Two GOP party advisors told CNN the chairwoman offered to leave her position to allow Trump to install his own party chair. Multiple news outlets reported the possible resignation yesterday, citing anonymous sources. An RNC spokesman stated last night nothing has changed and said the matter will be decided after South Carolina. McDaniel is the longest serving GOP chair since the Civil War. Removing her would take a two-thirds vote. She was elected with Trump's support after serving as the chairwoman of the Michigan Republican Party. McDaniel met Trump at his Florida estate on Monday. Trump posted on Truth Social after the meeting, saying he would make a decision after the South Carolina primary on his recommendations for RNC growth. Potential successors being discussed openly by RNC members include North Carolina GOP Chair Michael Wheatley and South Carolina GOP Chair Drew Mixisak. We also reached out to the RNC about McDaniel's possible resignation and are waiting to hear back still. Stay with us. Suspects in the Times Square attack on New York City police officers have been taken into custody. Where they were arrested and what's next in the case. Extremely wet California weather triggers nearly 400 mudslides in the Los Angeles area. Find out more about the weather wreaking havoc in the West Coast. Good to have you back. A new investigation into Harvard University's handling of alleged discrimination is underway. The Department of Education announced the probe yesterday. It comes after a federal civil rights complaint was filed last month against the university on behalf of Muslim and Palestinian students. More than a dozen students filed a complaint alleging Harvard failed to protect them from harassment and intimidation. This now adds more scrutiny over Harvard's handling of rising tensions on its campus since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. The DOE is also investigating other universities over alleged incidents of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on campus.
And recently, we reported New York City is giving prepaid credit cards to illegal immigrants. Families sheltering in hotels could get about $350 per month to spend on food and baby products. The city says the pilot program will save it about $7 million each year. Entity's Chris Beers went to New Yorkers to see what they think. Mayor Eric Adams is going to give out about $51 million in food credit cards to illegal immigrants staying at hotels in New York. What do you think about that? Okay, my uh, word to Mr. Adams, I know it's a vote-getting um, issue for him, right? But with what we have in New York, the situation after COVID and the present situation, right, it's, um, it's questionable why the mayor would do something like that. I think that's great. I think that's great. I think it's a great initiative. I think it's something that should be done. I think it should have been done. Um, I think it's uh, making them feel welcomed, and, uh, you know, I think it's a great idea. I don't think it's that much money, $1,000, um, to help somebody get a leg up. I think a small amount of money can do a lot um, as a single parent. Uh, I think I'm an immigrant. I'd love to see a credit card for myself, but that's obviously not how it works. And when people talk about, you know, free handouts, America is a land of opportunity. What America provides is opportunity, right? It shouldn't be providing you with free things. It should be providing you with the ability to create something of yourself. My family left Mexico because of security reasons. We couldn't build a home the way that we wanted to because Mexico was unsafe. So we came here to the U.S. We built a wonderful family. We took advantage of the opportunity by building something of ourselves, not through handouts. New York City Mayor Eric Adams defended the controversial plan yesterday. Adams stated the city is not giving people American Express cards. The program would give more money to illegal immigrants than to low-income residents and veterans. Moving on, four suspects who allegedly took part in the mob attack on New York City police officers in Times Square have been arrested. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, issued a statement saying they were taken into custody at a Greyhound bus station in Phoenix, Arizona. Officials say the suspects were believed to be fleeing New York due to their involvement in the attack. The four were transferred to the custody of ICE to be processed for immigration violations. NYPD surveillance video shows two officers being assaulted by a group of people outside a migrant shelter on January 27th. The police were in the process of trying to arrest someone. It's believed that 13 people took part in the attack in some manner. Another suspect has been arrested in Queens. And federal prosecutors charged 70 current and former employees of the New York City Housing Authority yesterday with taking bribes. The U.S. attorney in Manhattan called it the single largest, the, sing, the largest single-day bribery break takedown in Justice Department history. 66 of them are charged with soliciting and receiving bribes, as well as extortion as a government worker, which carries a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. Some of the accused also face conspiracy charges. The complaint says defendants demanded cash from contractors before they would authorize a contract or sign off on a completed job. They're accused of accepting over $2 million in bribes from about 100 different NYCHA buildings. So now turning our attention to weather, one of the wettest storms in Southern California history has unleashed nearly 400 mudslides in the Los Angeles area. That's after dumping more than half the amount of rainfall the city typically gets in a season in just two days. And some areas around Los Angeles reported um, almost a foot of rain falling in three days. Officials are telling people not to drive through floodwaters. In some parts of Southern California, evacuation orders are in place. 
In addition to California, Nevada and Arizona could also see flooding. California Highway Patrol released video on Tuesday of a washed out road nearly destroyed by floods in the Mojave Desert. Torrential downpours sweeping Southern California left flooded streets, mudslides and debris on Tuesday. Footage from Hesperia showed raging floodwaters rushing through Peckin Avenue. Meanwhile, in San Diego, some vehicles were still submerged as cleaning efforts continued. Intense rainfall caused a cliff to erode right outside a group of four apartment buildings. Officials evacuated more than 45 people in Isla Vista. A California first responder rescued two puppies found abandoned in the rain outside on the side of Fresno County. And just ahead, a new sports streaming platform in the works between major media players and plans to open hundreds of new J.P. Morgan Chase branches. Stay tuned for the updates with the host of NTD Business. Good to have you back, and we're joined by NTD Business host Don Ma to give us the latest on the financial world. So Don, what do you have for us today? All right, so just a few things uh, today, uh, including the biggest team up of three of the biggest sports uh, broadcasters in sports and uh, JP Morgan Chase's expansion, expansion plan. So I want to start off with the team up. So Disney's ESPN, Fox Corporation, and Warner Brothers Discovery is uniting to create a super platform, if you will. And this is going to house their sports streaming assets under a single roof. Uh, so potentially this is a seismic uh, and once potentially unthinkable move, uh, probably a pretty big deal here. So the service is going to offer consumers access to a host of sporting events. That's including uh, NFL, NBA, MLB, uh, NHL, and others. It has NASCAR as well and golf tournaments. And each company is going to own a third of the service. Wow, that's quite a lot. So how much is it though to get in on the fun? Okay, so there's not a lot of details out right now just yet. The companies didn't uh, specify uh, what it's going to call, what it's going to be called or uh, how much the platform is going to cost. But they did say that it's going to launch somewhere around the fall uh, time period. And the company's ex executives are banking on that by teaming up, they can take on bigger platforms like Netflix and technology companies like Apple and Amazon. Uh, they said the, they're offering increased choice for fans and as well as it's going to give those who have cut the cord to traditional TV a new sports-centric service. Well, you know what the company's goal is to make it the home base for sports viewing. Now, there's something going on with J.P. Morgan's expansion plan. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, it seems like uh, J.P. Morgan Chase is, is about to embark on an aggressive expansion. It announced a multi-billion dollar effort to grow its physical footprint, uh, which is going to include opening more than 500 uh, branches in the next three years and it's going to hire 3,500 employees, plans to expand uh, in cities like Boston, Minneapolis, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and the firm plans to enter several new markets here. So uh, that's including rural communities with uh, very few traditional banking options, uh, also plans to renovate roughly 1,700 existing locations. I think that's very interesting, especially because we've been hearing so much about layoffs. So why is JP Morgan doubling down with opening so many br new branches? Right, so uh, Chase's consumer banking CEO said that their branch uh, network is actually one of the key reasons uh, that customers open accounts 
with Chase, uh, as well as it helps them uh, attract deposits. So in the last five years, the bank has added 650 new branches, and JP Morgan had the largest network at the end of 2023 with over 4,800 branches. And its rival Bank of America actually has a thousand fewer than uh, JP Morgan. So JP Morgan now has more than two trillion dollars in deposits. And in 2021, it surpassed Bank of America as the biggest uh, total holder of deposits. So its plan seems to be working. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah, and Chase says they have about a million people every day coming into their branches to cash checks and make deposits and stuff like that. Dama, host of NTD Business, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, what is life like as a Shen Yun dancer? We ask a principal dancer about his journey to get on stage and his dad about sending his son into showbiz when we come back. is talking about it again because it is time we've seen the ads Shen Yun Performing Arts is on tour and as you can see we have two very special guests this morning principal dancer Jesse Browdy who found his calling on stage and we have his dad Levi Browdy welcome first of all and I know it must be a lot of anxiety and nerves to send your sons away for school and but I have to say it seems like it has worked out pretty well for you two because you both are now involved with Shinyun Performing Arts. So um, to start though, I wanna back up and start from the very beginning with Jesse, of course, because you grew up in the US, you were identifying with American culture, you played baseball. What was that kind of path that you took that you suddenly got interested in traditional Chinese uh, dance? Um, okay, so my parents found a school uh, located in Middletown, New York, that also taught the, the same kind of dance form as uh, what Shen Yun was doing on stage. And at the time, I had a lot of, uh, f I had a couple friends in the dance program. And so it was more peer pressure that, that, <laughs> that uh, it, was, it was because of more of peer pressure that I chose to enroll in the dance program because I kind of just wanted to be with my friends. Um, the reason I kept going with dance was kind of the brotherhood that kind mm -hmm. of, I, I noticed that the dancers seemed a bit closer with each other than like the other programs of that school, like the music department or like the academic yeah. department. So, okay, so you said it is Levi, your dad, who kind of went on to look for a private school. So mm. that brings me to you. Why, why were you trying to get him out of the public school system in the first place? I mean, I, I saw, we're, first of all, we were in a, what is supposedly a, a blue ribbon school district in New Jersey. It was a very good school district, but there is, I think, a pervasive problem in education that I was seeing. There was primarily uh, two things I would point out to. One is the combination of social media and smartphones had really decimated the social fabric of growing up in high school and, and things of that nature, much, much worse than I think even parents were recognizing at that point. I was looking at the studies coming out about what was happening to teenagers because of that and seeing what it was doing to the environment. I was very worried about that. The second thing I was very worried about, though, was this sort of 
this coddling kind of mentality that had seemed to creep into public schools or really education and parenting more broadly in our country over the last 10 years. And it was, I thought that combination was very dangerous for young people. If we're going to raise young people to be confident and poised, I thought that was not where I wanted to be. So I really, we actually went driving all throughout the northeastern United States looking for private schools that might have a better option. Mm. Why dance? <laughs> You know, it was interesting. Uh, for me, dance, I, he, he was interested because his friends, like he said, for me, I didn't really care about dance. I knew nothing about dance. But one thing I really liked is that, particularly at this school, the teachers were phenomenal. Um, and that's something I'm, my father actually told me this advice when, he sent, when I went off to college. He says, find the great teachers and take their classes. And I think what he meant by that, and I think it's really true, is that if you have great teachers who have done great things in life and they're bestowing that on young people, that is a very precious thing because they're teaching more than just the subject. They're teaching a methodology, a way of thinking, a way to, to achieve excellence. And I saw the dance teachers at this school that Jesse was going to were that. They were really high caliber people. And I thought, OK, I don't really care if he dances or if he learns or he gets mm -hmm. good, but he's going to learn from these teachers who are excellent. And that's going to be a great experience. So I was really excited about it. I want to come back to you, Jesse, for a moment. You started to put your mind really into becoming a dancer, and you became really um, set on that. So where did this change come from? OK, there was a pretty clear turning point for me, I guess. Uh, it was the spring of 2018. Uh, and then my dad, or actually the school, took us to see the Shenyun performance that year. It was that year that I kind of saw the not only the passion of the dancers on stage, but kind of the impact they had on the whole audience. And then coming out of that show, I was I kind of made up my mind that I wanted to do this in the future, and nobody could stop me from that. And it was mainly because I kind of wanted to inspire people the way I was inspired that night when I watched Shen Yun. So how was it for you then? You sent off your son. How was that transition like for you? Well, I mean, I, I, at Northern, when, when he was at the academy in, in Middletown, we were all still together. I mean, it was, it was just a regular day school, private school. But when he made the decision to try out for FATN uh, Academy and then eventually move on to the college, that was sort of the big change for us because that was a boarding school situation, and that would mean uh, losing my son. Exactly, <laughs> So it yeah. was, But it was interesting. I, I, had a, I had an interesting experience because... You know, I saw him working so hard to make it into the FATN that we were, we were sort of so immersed in that task together that it was like almost half a year where it was, you know, he was doing stretching, all these rigorous stretching mm -hmm. exercises, and we were sort of helping him, trying to support him. I remember the day that he, he, he got accepted, and we brought him up to campus. And I was leaving the campus, and I, I just saw a ton of bricks hit me. It felt like someone had died. And I, I, was, I was driving home, and I, was thinking, I couldn't understand intellectually because I was so focused on this great thing that he just made it into this place. And I just realized sort of like I wasn't ready for emotionally. And it took a long time, actually, to sort of like get over that. But every single time I got depressed or I was like concerned about it, I realized where he was and mm -hmm. sort of how focused he was on this goal. And that was the best thing for him. So dad eventually got over it. So just for context also, so the, we're talking about Feitian College. Being accepted into Feitian College meant for you that your chances to eventually maybe dance on, a, on the stage for Shen Yun got much larger. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, essentially Feitian College, you can think of it as the training college for Shen Yun. They actually share the same campus. 
in upstate New York. So the mm -hmm. Shenyun headquarters and Feitian College and Feitian Academy are all on a, a single 400-acre campus, beautiful campus in upstate New York. Got it, got yeah. it. So when you got accepted and you actually got in finally, did it? Fulfill? You just mentioned, you touched on it a little bit, that you didn't quite know what you were, you were getting yourself into. But what kind of expectations did you even have at that point? How was it in reality? Since the Feitian Academy, uh, the the dance level was a lot higher than that of Milltown, so I was expecting like the training to instantly elevate to Navy SEAL level kind of rigorous <laughs> training, and then I was a bit scared for that because already I was already having trouble uh, keeping up with like the stretching uh, routines we were doing at Middletown. It wasn't obviously it wasn't it wasn't Navy SEAL standards. Um, it was still pretty tough, but um, what I wasn't really expecting was kind of through this training, I developed kind of a bond with the classmates that. Uh, came up to Feitian with me and it's kind of I could almost call them brothers right now right now to this day because we went through we lived together we trained together um, when on like break days we would you know horse around and play around together and mm. it, they kind of just became a family away from home that's wonderful and can you tell me a little bit more about how can we imagine a day for you to be like because you're doing dance training to be a professional dancer and then you have all the school work on top what does this look like for you in a day so it leads to pretty much jam-packed days almost every single day but uh, in the morning is three hours of dance training be it mm -hmm. rehearsal or uh, like taking bar and stuff like that um, there are a lot of dancers that also wake up earlier to do some extra training before like before the rehearsals begin in the morning we call it Saogong and then after after lunch in uh, in the afternoon, uh, that's when we do our academic studies, where we learn everything from you know normal subjects you would see in school, like mathematics, science, history. We also learn uh, subjects that are that have that kind of we need on stage, it's like Chinese, Chinese culture, uh, Chinese mm. civilization, stuff like that. And then at night is just more training, more rehearsing. When was it really that you took this kind of sigh of relief and felt like, okay, he's fine there. This was the right decision. Did you have that yet? <laughs> yeah, I think there's, there's, two, there's two moments that popped to my mind. One is, you know, during the whole COVID period, there was, there was, they had a very strict sort of bubble system and I didn't get to see much. And, and I didn't really see much before the COVID period. So it was kind of, because of all that, it was like a two and a half year period. I think it wasn't until the dance competition in, 22 or 21. Mm. So I hadn't seen Jesse perform really on stage. And that was the first time. So, and again, I, I, there was, my son is the baseball player. That's what I was used to. And then when I went to that competition saw him uh, competing, that was an aha moment. I mean, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. A complete transformation in terms of his physique and his ability to dance. And admittedly, I cried like a baby. <laughs> And that was, that was definitely an aha moment. I think the second moment was, and these are more sort of subtle, but when we, you know, during their off days, uh, once a week they're off and they, you, he'll come home or we'll go out to eat. There was just this change where he was sort of like, I don't know if he knows this, but um, <laughs> All these we would be sort today. of sharing on Chinese culture and things like that. And he's actually giving me pointers because I was learning Chinese at, the point, at one, mm. one point in time. And he was sort of giving me pointers on how you focus on it and what not to worry about. And I was sort of like, 
it was it was a bond it was a level of bonding that I'd never had before more you know it was usually just father son kind of thing but this was more like a peer this is more like someone who had gained a tremendous amount of wisdom and experience where he was and he's coming back and sharing it with me and I sort of you know he left the room when he was helping me with my Chinese and he left and I kind of sat back and I went wow mm. things have really changed up there and I think moments like that really tell me this was absolutely the right decision very happy Tell me more about, because sometimes if you're trying to grasp a culture, right, because culture is as something so intangible, a lot of it is just kind of being left unsaid. It's just there. So tell me more about how you really um, figure that out, grasping the essence of a culture and knowing what, what the essence is. Trying to first portray a character that lived 3,000 years ago mm. and then make the audience believe that they're actually in a scene that happened 3,000 years ago um, I feel like ultimately it comes down to the values that you want to portray. Like, for example, last year I portrayed a general, uh, Zhao Yun. He's very famous for his bravery and his loyalty and his humility. And I feel like, like aside from reading the history of it, aside from knowing the history, um, aside, in, aside from watching like TV shows and reading books on this character, I feel like I tried to almost change my behavior or like try to like incorporate these values into my daily life a little bit more. I try to be more humble. I try to actually like respect my superiors a little bit more. Um, that's kind of hard, hard to put into words, but um, I guess what helps me um, portray these values on stage is to actually kind of live these values in real life. Mm -hmm. You put a lot of work into all this. You studied day in, day out hours for dance and then of course historically and then how did it feel like when you actually made it onto the big stage? So I remember the first time uh, the curtain opened to see my first like live audience and I kind of panicked. <laughs> it was like all that preparation for like a split second went into some remote corner of my brain. I was like wow what's going on? Um, but I guess the more I kind of performed the more I was able to take what's in my heart and sort of share it with the audience mm. through nonverbal movement. And I guess what that's kind of the beauty of dance is it it kind of transcends the value the, the barriers of language and you can use dance to kind of inspire people, to enlighten people, to mm. educate people. By being part of the show, what is it that you would like to give the audience after, you know, after a night out watching Shen Yun? What is it that you hope they would take away? Honestly, it's kind of what I took away when I saw Shen Yun that spring in 2018 was just inspire them to be better people. And I feel like this is kind of the ultimate purpose of mm -hmm. art is to, again, kind of to inspire people to be better. What would you say is the biggest change in him, seeing him growing up now, ever since you sent him to the school? No, no, ask me. Well, he's a lot taller <laughs> now. He's a lot taller now. Um, uh, there's a lot of, I don't know if there's one big thing. There's a lot of little things. You know, he has this t-shirt he sometimes wears that says, no, no bad days. <laughs> and I love that. I, mean, it's I sort aspire of, to that. Yeah, it, it sort of encapsulates a spirit that Jesse always kind of had. I mean, he always had this mm. sort of gutsiness to him that I never had at his age when he was a young kid. But it really flourished when he got to Feitian and started with Shen Yun. And that this whole spirit of like, if you're doing great in the day and everything's going well, be productive. 
if everything's going horribly, learn from it. Fortitude, you know, add some fortitude to your willpower. Power through it. The idea that he embraces those principles and lives them. Mm. I mean, it's, it's these kind of things. That's one example. There's many of them. But it's those kind of things that I think really sort of not only make me proud, but I, I learned from it as well. So up until now, what is it? What do you think about it? What makes you proud? As a parent, look, I, I, myself, actually my whole family, I come from a very educated family. Education has always been a very big deal in my family. And I'd always thought, and that's not just in the classroom. It's sort of like, how do you raise children not to live the life you want, but to give them all the tools to live the life that they want with a reasonably strong moral compass and confidence and poise. I mean, that's a, that's a difficult puzzle to sort of piece together, especially in the world today. And honestly, I spent a lot of sleepless nights and worries about how to do that properly, you know, as the boys were growing older and older and older. And I think um, when we found Feitian and I saw the mission of Feitian, that, that they were going to that they would shape young artists to be not only world-class artists, but I would say world-class people, people who, who, who learn the value of putting others before themselves, learn the value of aspiring to be more compassionate and things of this nature. I mean, that was really an aha moment for me, a major relief. <laughs> the search was over. And I think I'm most proud to just see that he's been able to have this opportunity to mm. go through that, 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 the college, to be part of Shenya and to be part of this, because that's what I always wished, is he would find something like that. Yeah. So what kind of role would you say now that Shenyun has in your life? It gave me a, it gave me a purpose. Like before, I'd, I didn't really know what I was, where I was going to go in life, but I guess what Shenyun did for me was it gave me a purpose in life, not just like superficially, like career-wise, it also gave me kind of like a a moral standard that I have to meet every single day and kind of be the best person, best artist that I can be. Mm. Well, I think you guys really came a long way, and especially you with all this, like I said, um, with the drive that you have. And going from baseball prayer, you said you tried to keep up with stretching up until now as a principal dancer. So Jesse Browdy, Levi Browdy, I really appreciate your time today. And on that note, if you want to learn more about Shen Yun, head to shenyun.com. And we will be back in a minute, so stay with us. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price this is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. Yeah, so there's a tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD.
Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories. The a federal appeals court strikes down former President Trump's claim to immunity in the 2020 criminal election case. More on the decision yesterday, allowing prosecution and Trump's vow to appeal. House Republicans fail to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Why three Republicans refuse to vote along party lines. The House rejects a standalone bill to provide $17 billion in aid to Israel. How critics and supporters of the measure are reacting. Qatar announcing that Hamas has responded to a proposed hostage prisoner swap deal. Israel and the U.S. are still reviewing the response. What we know about the deal so far. A former president of Chile is dead after a helicopter crash. What led to the tragedy and how the country is mourning. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Wednesday, February 7th, and in today's top news, a federal appeals court has ruled former President Trump can face trial over his alleged role in the January 6th breach at the Capitol. The unanimous decision to reject Trump's claim to presidential immunity is paused until Monday to give time for appeal. Trump argues he acted in his official capacity to protect election integrity and should be shielded from criminal liability. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on yesterday's ruling. A three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously rejected Trump's claim to presidential immunity Tuesday. The panel wrote it cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. The court wrote former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant and concluded any executive immunity that may have protected him as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. Trump's attorneys argue the Constitution Impeachment Judgment Clause indicates Congress held responsibility for trying a president, and that criminal prosecution could only take place after Congress had impeached and convicted a president. The appeals court disagreed, writing the framers knew how to explicitly grant criminal immunity in the Constitution, as they did to legislators in the Speech or Debate Clause, yet they chose not to include a similar provision granting immunity to the president. The judges ruled impeachments cannot be equivalent to criminal prosecutions, rejecting a double jeopardy argument. The court also found Trump is not immune from criminal prosecution under the separation of powers clause. The panel gave Trump until Monday to file an emergency stay request with the Supreme Court. Trump's team vowed to appeal. He can go directly to the U.S. Supreme Court or can ask the entire appellate court to reconsider the ruling. Trump on Truth Social after the decision posted, a president must have full immunity in order to properly function. The Trump campaign stated if immunity is not granted to a president, every future president who leaves office will be immediately indicted by the opposing party. If the high court declines to take up the appeal, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin would be able to restart trial proceedings. If the court accepts Trump's request, any timetable it sets will decide any further delays. Trump faces four counts in Smith's January 6th case, including conspiring to defraud the United States and to obstruct an official proceeding. Trump has pleaded not guilty and says he was working to ensure election integrity as part of his official capacity as president. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. For analysis on the appeals court ruling blocking Trump from receiving presidential immunity in his election case, we bring in John Malcolm. He's the vice president of Heritage's Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. John, good morning to you. Is the denial of Trump's presidential immunity in his election case justified here? 
well, I wasn't at all surprised. His lawyers made a very, very broad argument, in fact, broader than I thought they needed to make, by saying he gets a pass for everything that he did while in office, and the only way he doesn't get a pass is if he's impeached and then convicted by the Senate. Uh, that was rejected. I mean, at one point during the oral argument in that case, a judge said, so you mean if President Trump had ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate his opponent, he would be immune from prosecution unless he was impeached and convicted. And Trump's lawyer said, yes, that's right. The court rejected that and said, look, this is a criminal uh, statute. President is not above the law. We have to assume the allegations uh, in the indictment are true, that he knew he was doing something wrong, uh, and he does not get immunity from that. And the fact that he was acquitted at his impeachment trials, that is really a political process. It's not a criminal process. Uh, and it does not bar him from being tried for the actions uh, that are alleged in the indictment. Right, John. Trump's legal team raised many eyebrows with that assassination argument. And then Jack Smith's team responded by saying, what kind of world are we living in if he can't be prosecuted for something like that? Now, is there precedent for this ruling here? No. Uh, and the D.C. Circuit said that this is a case of first impression. There is precedent for presidential immunity from civil lawsuits after a president leaves office. But we've never had a president, uh, a former president who was indicted. Uh, uh, Richard Nixon came close, but of course he was pardoned by uh, President Gerald Ford. Uh, so no, there is not much precedent for this. There are a lot of cases involving judges, congressmen, other former officials who have been uh, tried and convicted for acts that they took while they were in office, but not for a former president. Right. And John, will this likely be appealed to the Supreme Court or to the full appeals court? And if so, what's likely to happen? Well, it certainly will be appealed to the, the U.S. Supreme Court. The court said it was going to stay its mandate for a few days to allow that to happen. I think the president is still going to ask the full D.C. Circuit to reconsider the issue, if for no other reason, because it is going to kick the can down the road. He wants to delay this trial as long as possible. Uh, and if possible, put it off until after the election. There is nothing going on in the uh, district court while this case remains uh, on appeal. Uh, so I think that's what he'll do. But at the very least, he will certainly ask the Supreme Court at some time to overturn this decision. Okay. And can you explain the difference between immunity for civil cases versus criminal charges? Sure. So a civil lawsuit uh, is uh, somebody, it could be the Department of Justice, could be an aggrieved individual files an action saying, you took an action that harmed me, you owe me money. And the Supreme Court has said in a case called Nixon versus Fitzgerald, a 1982 case, said, so long as a president is acting within the outer perimeter of his duties, he is immune from any action that he took as president, even when he is now a former president. It was a basic concern that every action a president takes is going to irritate somebody who might be tempted to sue that this would open a floodgate of potential civil lawsuits and deter presidents from acting. This court took a very different view with respect to criminal prosecution, saying the first time that this is the first time this has happened. That indicates that there will be no floodgates. President Trump had said that it would open floodgates. And they said that criminal laws are different and that no man is above the law, including the president of the United States. Well, John Malcolm, VP of Heritage's Institute for Constitutional Government, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Good to be with you. The International Union of Police Associations, 
<clears throat> is endorsing former President Trump. The group praised Trump's unmatched support for law enforcement while criticizing Democrats for being soft on crime. IUPA President Sam Cabral said yesterday Trump's policies and actions were focused on improving safety in communities, whereas some Democratic policies that support defunding the police and reduce accountability for criminal behavior have resulted in rampant crime. Trump supporters now hope America's largest police union, the Fraternal Order of Police, will soon follow with its own endorsement. The FOP and the National Association of Police Officers both endorsed Trump in 2020. Candidate Nikki Haley suffered another setback in her presidential campaign. The former U.N. ambassador came in second at the Nevada Republican primary, in which she was the only major candidate. Meanwhile, President Biden won the state's Democratic primary, his second victory after New Hampshire. Nevada on Tuesday held its first Republican primary in years. Noticeably missing from the ballot, former president and current GOP frontrunner Donald Trump. He's standing instead in the Republican caucuses on Thursday. In an unusual move, Nevada is hosting both contests, though only the caucuses will provide the winner with delegates. Candidates must choose to participate in either the primary or the caucuses, but registered voters can vote in both if they chose to. This could explain why Nikki Haley finished the contest behind the ballot option, none of these candidates. Here's what one voter said when asked why he chose that option. Because I know who I'm going to vote for, I'm voting for Trump. Trump is expected to win the caucuses on Thursday. This will take him a step closer to the presidential nomination. We're not going to have a lot of competition, I think, but it doesn't matter. We want to get a great, beautiful mandate. And this November, we're going to win the swing state of Nevada. You ever think of it as a swing state? Meanwhile, President Biden also faced little competition in the Democratic primary. He won in a landslide vote over author Marianne Williamson and Congressman Dean Phillips. The latter's name not appearing on the Nevada ballot at all. From the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you. You all are the reason why I'm president of the United States of America. You're the reason. Haley has been focusing her attention on the upcoming South Carolina primary, where she will once again go head-to-head -head with Trump. But the results in Nevada could put a further damper on her campaign. Coming up, House Republicans failed to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Find out why three Republicans refused to vote along party lines. The House failed to pass a Republican-led bill to provide aid to Israel yesterday. Meanwhile, President Biden blamed Trump for tanking a bipartisan border security bill that also included aid to Israel and Ukraine. That and more coming up. Welcome back. House Republicans failed yesterday in their effort to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. He's been accused of refusing to enforce multiple immigration laws. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the vote. The chamber erupted with Democratic applause when House Speaker Mike Johnson announced the results. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 216. The resolution is not adopted. The vote took place after two hours of hard-hitting floor debate. Congressman Chip Roy accused Mayorkas of blatantly ignoring the laws of the United States. He has done so with reckless abandon. He has done so in a way that has led directly 
to the death of American citizens. Congresswoman Laurel Lee says the head of an executive branch agency can't be allowed to pursue policies that violate the law and endanger Americans. Secretary Mayorkas has willfully and deliberately refused to uphold the laws of the United States. He has violated his oath of office and he has breached the public trust. House Democrats united against the effort, calling the proceedings a sham. Congressman James McGovern says impeachment is a solemn act. It's not something that ought to get thrown around lightly or invoked when you disagree with someone or you don't like their policies. Congressman Glenn Ivey says impeachment should be reserved for high crimes and misdemeanors. But House Republicans have decided to abuse that responsibility for a cheap political stunt. Three Republicans joined Democrats in voting against the impeachment. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene reacting. I'm sure they'll hear from their constituents. Uh, I'm sure they're probably hearing from them already. Congressman Mike Gallagher was one of the holdouts. He wrote on X that creating a new lower standard for impeachment, one without any clear limiting principle, wouldn't secure the border or hold President Biden accountable. It would only further pry open the Pandora's box of perpetual impeachment. Another holdout was Congressman Ken Buck. I think the principle is very clear that uh, Mayorkas did not commit a high crime or misdemeanor. And Congressman Tom McClintock, who says the impeachment of Mayorkas would set a dangerous precedent. We can expect it to be leveled against every conservative Supreme Court justice, uh, every future Republican president and cabinet member the moment the Democrats take control, and there'll be nobody there to stop them because we will have been complicit. House Majority Leader Stephen Scalise was absent from the vote due to undergoing treatment for blood cancer. The House is likely to revisit plans to impeach Mayorkas at a later date. But even if Republicans are able to impeach him, he's not expected to be convicted in a Senate trial where Republican senators have been cool to the effort. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The House yesterday failed to pass a GOP-led standalone bill to provide aid to Israel. This, while a bipartisan border security bill, which includes aid to Israel and Ukraine, faces Republican opposition in the Senate. The bill is not passed. The $17.6 billion bill, introduced under an expedited procedure, didn't get the two-thirds majority needed to pass. Even if it had passed, it was unlikely to have made it through the Democrat-controlled Senate. President Biden earlier threatened to veto the bill. Mr. President, if this bill fails, would you consider supporting something separate that just addresses Israel or Ukraine? I'm not going to concede that now. We need it all. The rest of the world's looking at us, and they really are. House Speaker Mike Johnson responded to the White House, calling the veto threat a rebuke to our closest ally in the Middle East at their time of great need. The legislation included $4 billion for the Iron Dome and David's sling missile defense systems and $1.2 billion for the Iron Beam defense system. Many opponents called the standalone bill a political ploy by Republicans to distract from their opposition to a bipartisan Senate package that combines funding for immigration and border measures with emergency aid for Ukraine and Israel. While declaring that bill dead on arrival in the House, the majority has opted to consider a bill that we know the president will veto. This is a political stunt that makes it less likely that Israel gets its funds while endangering U.S. national security. 
Some Democrats rejected the bill outright, saying that U.S. tax dollars should not be used to fund Israel's fight against Hamas. Israel has been taking military action in Gaza since October 7th, when Hamas terrorists launched the greatest single-day massacre of Jews since the Holocaust during World War II. Supporters of the bill said it's necessary to restate America's support for Israel. This $17.6 billion appropriated will save Israeli lives. It'll work to defeat Hamas terrorists. Even ultimately, if the Senate does pass their bill and it does come here, then we'll deal with that. But why would you ever want to be on the record on a clean bill opposing aid to the state of Israel? It's foolish. Meanwhile, the $118 billion bipartisan Senate bill looks to be on shaky ground. Senate Republicans are on track to vote against proceeding with the measure. The collapsing Senate bill prompting President Biden and former President Trump to trade blame over the border crisis. Entity's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. The border deal is falling apart as more and more Republican lawmakers say it's not going to fix our border. And President Biden on Tuesday blaming former President Trump, criticizing him for telling Republican lawmakers to vote against it. He's not interested in solving the border problem. He wants a political issue to run against me. Every day between now and November, the American people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump. The bipartisan bill, which came after months of painstaking negotiations, would give $60 billion to Ukraine and $14 billion to Israel. It would also shut down the border if more than 5,000 migrants cross the border every day. Trump on Monday said only a fool would vote for that, and some Senate Republicans on Tuesday saying that this bill would only make the border situation even worse. We don't want to codify Biden's open-door policy. We don't want to hurt the next Republican uh, administration from their ability to secure the border, which is what Americans want. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. Turning now to the war in Gaza, Hamas has responded to a hostage-prisoner swap deal mediated by Qatar. The Qatari Prime Minister made the announcement at a joint press conference with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Doha. We have received a reply from Hamas. With regards to the general framework of the agreement with regard to hostages, the reply includes some comments, but in general it is positive. In a statement, Hamas said they have dealt with the proposal in a positive spirit, ensuring a comprehensive and complete ceasefire, ending the aggression against our people, ensuring relief, shelter and reconstruction, lifting the siege on the Gaza Strip and completing a prisoner exchange. President Biden said Hamas's response appeared a little over the top. The administration will be reviewing it. There's still a lot of work to be done uh, here before we have a deal. Although details of the deal are not confirmed, reportedly it would consist of a weeks-long ceasefire that would include Israel releasing Palestinian prisoners in exchange for tens of hostages in Gaza. It would also include a provision for the bodies of dead hostages to be returned to Israel. There are still over 130 hostages being held by Hamas terrorists, including as many as six Americans. It's not guaranteed that Israel will accept the proposal. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said Israel won't stop fighting until Hamas is eradicated. Blinken is heading to Tel Aviv on Wednesday. The Secretary of State is expected to push for a humanitarian pause in the fighting when he meets with Netanyahu. We now actually have Hamas's counterproposal obtained by Reuters and CNN, and it includes a four and a half month ceasefire broken up into three phases 
each lasting 45 days. There would be an exchange of Israeli hostages for Palestinian prisoners. The reconstruction of Gaza would begin. Israeli forces would withdraw completely and bodies and remains would be exchanged. All Israeli women hostages, males under 19, the elderly and sick would be released during the first phase in exchange for the release of Palestinian women and children from Israeli jails. Remaining male hostages would be released during the second phase and remains exchanged in the third phase. And by the end of the third phase, Hamas expects the sides to have reached agreement on an end to the war. The terrorist group which governs Gaza also said it wants 1,500 prisoners to be released, including some Palestinians handed life sentences by Israel. It's still unclear, though, how Israel will respond to this counterproposals. And as negotiations continue, a new report suggests there may be fewer hostages alive than previously thought. The report says at least 32 of the 136 hostages left in Gaza are dead. That's one in every five hostages. This comes from a confidential assessment by the Israeli military reviewed by the New York Times. Israeli intelligence officers also told the paper they're assessing reports of at least 20 other hostages who may have been killed. During the October 7th attack, Hamas terrorists kidnapped over 250 hostages from Israel. Roughly 100 of them were freed in November. It, the Israel military said most of the 32 hostages who died were killed on October 7th. The military previously confirmed that 29 hostages are dead. And before we end the show, we're going to some short headlines from around the world. Chilean ex-president Sebastian Panera died in a helicopter crash yesterday. The helicopter carrying Panera and three others plunged into a lake in southern Chile. The former president was pronounced dead at the scene. The three other passengers survived. Sources told Reuters Panera was the pilot, although officials have not confirmed that or the helicopter's intended destination. A government official said the ex-president's body had been recovered from the lake. President Gabriel Boric declared three days of national mourning while preparations are made for a state funeral on Friday. Farmers across Spain staged tractor protests blocking highways yesterday. They're demanding changes in EU policies, funds and measures to combat production cost hikes. The protests came as the Agriculture Ministry announced roughly $290 million in aid. The aid is meant to compensate for drought conditions and problems caused by the war in Ukraine. The farmers say it's not enough. Spanish farmers are the latest to join this wave of protests after farmers in France, Italy, Belgium and other countries across Europe. The demonstrations are expected to continue over the coming weeks with a major protests in central Madrid plant later this month. And nearly 68 million adults in the U.S. are expected to bet on Sunday's Super Bowl. That's according to the American Gaming Association. Betting participation is expected to be 35% higher than last year, setting a new record. The group also predicted that bettors plan to wager an estimated $23 billion this year, up from $16 billion last year. These figures include both legal and illegal bets. Sports betting is legal in 38 states plus Washington, D.C. The Gaming Association also said bettors are nearly split on the outcome of the game, with 47% putting their money on the Kansas City Chiefs and 44% on the San Francisco 49ers. 
This year's Super Bowl will be played in Las Vegas. It'll be the first time for Nevada to host the game. That's a huge market right there. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we'll be ending the show right now, but we'll keep you updated, of course, with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.